Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 665 with Katie Milkman. If you've ever struggled to make a change and just fell flat, maybe more times than you care to admit, Katie is bringing the goods with her boatloads of research science-backed approaches for making lasting change. So you'll learn one, the top obstacles of change and how to overcome them, two, how to overcome your own impulsivity, and three, how you can make your laziness work for you. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to as we referenced, drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP665. And if you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I encourage you to check out our gold nugget summary emails, which give you the quick summarized reader-friendly version of the episode insights right to your inbox, as well as access to the vault of all of these gold nuggets over at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now, here's Katie's story. Katie Milkman is the James G. Deenan Professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, host of the Charles Schwab Popular Behavioral Economics Podcast, Choiceology, and the former president of the International Society for Judgment and Decision Making. It's a lot of pressure to have good judgment with that role. Over the course of her career, she has worked with or advised dozens of organizations on how to spur positive change, including Google, the U.S. Department of Defense, and Walmart. Katie is an award-winning scholar and teacher who writes frequently about behavioral science for major media outlets such as The Washington Post, The New York Times, and many others. Her book, How to Change the Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be, came out just two days ago. She earned her undergraduate degree from Princeton University, summa cum laude, and her PhD from Harvard, where she studied computer science and business. Big thanks to Katie for sharing her wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Katie. Katie, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to learn how to change once and for all. You've literally written the book on this, and I can't wait to hear your insights. Well, I'm excited to share. (laughs) Well, maybe to kick it off, could you share maybe what's one of the most surprising, fascinating, counterintuitive discoveries you've made about us humans doing behavior change while researching the book How to Change? Oh, that's a great question. I love starting with that question. Um, Probably would be a study I ran at Google that had the most counterintuitive finding to me. And it was a study where actually my collaborators and I were trying to figure out if we could create more durable habits 
around exercise in people if we got them to build really consistent routines, which is what our read of the habit literature suggested makes habits sticky. Like always at the same time of day, I'm really, Mm -hmm. really grounded in that routine. And now it becomes like second nature to me. And uh, if we could build that, we thought then we'd sort of let go and we'd see these lasting habits. So we ran this experiment with Google employees where we basically for a month gave them rewards for either visiting the gym at the same time of day, a consistent time that they'd said was ideal for them, or for any time, whatever they wanted. So some about half of their visits ended up being at a consistent time, but the other half were all over the place. And so one group was rewarded only when they went during the time they said, and the other was rewarded regardless? Exactly. Okay. Um, we actually varied the size of the incentive, so we got variance in how often people went. And we basically ended up with two groups who went the same frequency, but in different patterns. One is going very consistently. The other is more variable in, in what they when they go. And then the question was, what happens at the end of this month? And we were sure we knew it was going to be the people who had that consistent routine and we were wrong. And what we found out is that the reason we were wrong is not not that we had our model completely messed up. It was true that the people who had been really consistent in their exercise, we basically trained to be automatons at the same time, same time each day. Those people actually were a little more likely to keep going at that same time. But if they didn't make it to the gym at that time, they didn't go at all. Hmm. And the folks who had built a more flexible habit ended up with a more durable habit because Mm. they went a little less often at that magic time that was the best time each day for them. But they went at other times, too. And net net, they went more. And that was really surprising to us that it turns out, and and I write about this in the book, I call it the power of elastic habits. Um, I really expected from everything I'd read that those consistent cues would be critical to durable habit formation. But what we found instead was that it bred rigidity and that if you're going to get something done, you need to be flexible and just say, I'm going to do it no matter what, not I'm going to only do it under this narrow set of circumstances. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really interesting and was a really important takeaway and counterintuitive to me. Although now it makes sense. In hindsight, I can I can see why that's important, but it is not what I expected. And we surveyed um, professors of psychology at all the top universities and 80 percent of them also We're surprised. They predicted strongly, oh, yeah, that consistency. That's what we know about habits. Consistency breeds habit. And it's just not what we found. Yeah, wow, that's striking. And so, well, there's one gem right there. So thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. Thank you for the great opening question. (laughs) Well, let's zoom out a little bit in terms of, okay, your book, How to Change, The Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. Can you lay it on us sort of like the big idea or key theme or thesis associated with this work? Yeah, absolutely. So the key idea behind this book is that there's a lot, of course, of of great books and a lot of great knowledge out there about how to change. And yet it's not getting us where we want to be for the most part, right? People are still looking for these kinds of books, still trying to figure it out. A lot of us aren't where we want to be. And one of the things I have found in my career devoted to studying this topic of where James comes from is that I think part of the problem is we often don't focus on what is actually obstructing change for a given individual, for a given challenge or a given goal they're trying to achieve and tailor the solution to that obstacle. We sort of grab one of those big ideas off the shelf that sounds sexy and appealing, like, you know, set big audacious goals and then break them down or like build a really 
tiny habit and and um, piggyback. Like there's all these ideas that are out there. They're appealing, but they won't work if they're not solving for what's holding you back. So that's kind of the big idea behind the book. There's all these different things that can be barriers to change, whether it's I don't enjoy doing the thing that I need to do to change or I keep forgetting to do the thing and flaking out um, because I'm too busy and it's just I can't prioritize it or I'm having trouble getting started or I don't have the confidence to change. I don't believe I really can. And that's holding me back. Or my peer group is not showing me the ways to do it and it is a bad influence. Like what, what is the challenge and the solution then will be different. And we can make more progress if we actually diagnose what's standing in the way and then use the best science to solve that specific problem. And I see this all the time in my work with companies that they have some behavioral, you know, we want to get people to save more for retirement or to get their flu shots or to be more productive. And like, let's just sort of grab from this bag of tricks from behavioral science and we think we'll be able to slap a solution on it. But if they there isn't an understanding of, well, why aren't people saving? Why aren't they productive? What's holding them back that is matched to the solution we don't get very far? Well, Katie, that's resonating a whole lot. I'm getting chills <laughs> in terms of like just just much truth here. So thank you. <laughs> in a way, it seems like self-evident. Well, of course, you should figure out, you know, what's the challenge and, uh, you know, address it. It does seem self-evident. <laughs> and yet we don't. It's astounding how often we don't. Yes. <laughs> so can you lay it down? Lay it on us then. What's maybe the menu of categories of obstacles and the best practices for deconstructing or addressing those obstacles. And then maybe even before we go there, how do we go about identifying it and zooming in on it very well? Because for example, when you say, why don't people save? Like, well, I just don't have enough money. I don't have any spare money to save. I guess we're done. And so it's like, well, no, not quite. I think we got to dig deeper. So <laughs> yes. So yeah, let's start there. How do I identify like, What's the crux of the obstacle here? I think the answer is probably um, most people will recognize themselves and a specific problem when they see these different discussions. So, for example, I, I mentioned um, it's not fun. That's a really common one. Okay. I don't know if that that's not a super common one for retirement savings. Most of us aren't like, I want it to be fun to save. But it's a, uh, and like I, I find it dreadful and dreadfully unpleasant in the moment to do it. That's more like exercising or um, you know, eating right or uh, really, you know, focusing at work instead of scrolling social media. But that's a category of obstacle. Um, another category of obstacle is I like I just I don't see how I can do this. This doesn't seem doable. I think that's a big one in retirement savings actually is like, wow, it doesn't feel feasible. Um, and that can come down to confidence. It can come down to what you've seen other people like you accomplish and how if you've learned their techniques and skills for doing it. Another category can be, as I mentioned before, just flaking out like there's just a lot going on and I can't get this to the top of the list and I keep spacing it when it's time to actually set up the mm -hmm. 401k. So it, it depends on which one you see yourself in. And I think it, it's not like a category of problem. is It's always the same answer for different people, right? For some people, savings is also about procrastination. I mean to do it, but like tomorrow I'll get around to it. And then tomorrow never becomes today. So I think 
the goal of the book is that the reader will be able to see themselves as they see the classes of challenges and see what the solutions are. And th there may be some experimentation individuals have to do like, oh, I thought this was the right solution for me. I tried it. But I really, oops, I had diagnosed my barrier wrong. Really, it, that wasn't what was holding me back. It wasn't that I wasn't going to the gym because I thought it was incredibly unpleasant. It was that I, you know, just like hadn't made the time to do it with the right people and I didn't have the right social network and the right structures. So there's different problems mm -hmm. for different people and even for the same outcome. So there's some commonalities. Well, so then it sounds like one way that you diagnose kind of like the core obstacle is you try something and you realize, hey, turns out that wasn't it at all. <laughs> <laughs> okay, learn and grow. That's one way. Hopefully though, hopefully it's, it, I mean, I think that will be one way. I also think another way will be looking, you know, through the book and even through this conversation and seeing yourself in in the challenge. So I do think people will be able to self-diagnose if they just give it a little thought. I think normally that's not the prompt we get. Instead, we get a solution like, here's your solution. Yeah. You know, this is going to work for you because it works for lots of other people instead of some thought about, you know, why is it that I can't motivate myself to do X? And often introspection is going to be enough. Like, it, you know, we're not that hard to understand when we look yeah. internally in a lot of cases. Well, so let's say that if I am thinking about, hey, what's my obstacle? And then what I come up with is something lame. <laughs> like, um, no, I just don't have enough time. Like, what does that really mean? And how do we get deeper? Yeah, well, I don't have enough time isn't the kind of obstacle that the book is about because that's not an internal obstacle. So the book is really about what, how are you holding yourself back? I, I don't have enough time is um, an external obstacle, right? Like the way you structure your life needs to change. And I think you'd get some ideas about that once you read the book about, oh, okay, does that mean like, are you really not have enough time or you just need to restructure yourself and your life differently? But the book is more about, um, so it's like, if you're like, I don't have the resources, uh -huh. that's a different kind of challenge than, um, I can't get myself to. Yeah. And I need to find a way to get myself to do something differently. Does that make sense? Oh, I hear you. And I guess maybe you're kinder than I am to our imaginary interlocutor here. I guess when I hear I don't have enough time, I guess I just don't buy it. Well, yeah, <laughs> and it can default? also be like, I don't have a priority to do this. I, uh -huh. So the book, the book is not to convince you that you need to change. And then, yeah. right. The book is for someone who has a goal. Mm -hmm. They want to achieve it. They haven't been able to get there or, you know, maybe they haven't tried yet. They're ready to try. And uh -huh. it's going to offer the, you know, the best science has for them about how they can set themselves up for success. doesn't mean it doesn't guarantee success by any stretch. Oh, sure. Change is really, really hard. But hopefully, you know, I think my career has been devoted to understanding what what is the best knowledge out there was the best science out there on how we can change. And I've tried to put it all in one place so that for, for someone who's motivated and ready to give it a shot, it'll give them the best chance available. I hear you. Well, and I think that, that precondition right there says it all in terms of like, if you're really motivated, I don't have enough time is probably not going to be what you say as your obstacle. Right, right. Because by definition, you think it's important enough to make some time. Exactly. And it might just be tricky to actually figure that out in a calendar, like, you know, for real, where do these 30 minutes actually emerge from? So maybe can you lay it on us? Perhaps like the top three obstacles and some of your favorite solutions to those obstacles? Sure. 
Ooh, now I have to have top three. Well, okay, I can I can give you one that I love um, because I'll probably st- I'm gonna pick on ones where I've done the most research personally, which doesn't necessarily mean they're the most important ones, but they're the ones I find most interesting. Okay. So um, one of them is impulsivity, and I've touched on this a little bit already in things I've said, which is like people are wired to look for instant gratification and to dramatically discount things that are good for us in the long run, which is why it's so hard to drag yourself to the gym and eat that healthy food when there's a pizza right next to it or a brownie calling your name, um, stay off social media, study for a test when there's more exciting options that night, even though you know clearly what's good for you in the long run, um, is just not fun to do in the moment. And I think one of the really interesting things research has shown is that people generally, when they face a challenge like this to motivate themselves to do something that's not that enjoyable in the moment, but that's good for them in the long run, our inclination is to just try to push through and look for Mm -hmm. the most effective way to achieve our goal. So if we're, I'm going to go back to the gym, but (laughs) there's lots of places you could think about this. If you're choosing what workout to do at the gym, most people are like, I'm going to do the most effective workout on this first trip to the gym, as opposed to um, an alternative, which would be, I'm going to do the most fun thing I can do. I'm going to do the Zumba class. It's not going to burn as many calories per minute, maybe, but I'm going to enjoy it. Um, Same thing with healthy foods. We look for like, you know, the basket of foods that's most sinless Mm -hmm. and as opposed to a healthy food that we actually enjoy eating or, um, you know, you need to study and and do work. Like, do you try to set up an environment where you're going to really actually enjoy it? Maybe there's some some people around who you're studying with or you're in a coffee shop that you like and you get yourself your favorite drink and you feel great. Um, Or are you going to just try to do it in a distraction free environment because that's the most effective? So most of us think effective. And what research shows is we're actually better off trying to do the fun workout, eat the tastier, healthy food, even if it's a a little worse for us and, um, you know, study in the way that's a little less effective, but more fun if we want to persist. Because we're so wired for that instant gratification, we won't push through. We think we will, but we won't if it's not fun. So I think that's a really important insight. It's um, And it actually is really related to some work I did as an early early on in my faculty career on something that's a very specific solution to this. I call it temptation bundling. Mm-hmm. And the idea is only allowing yourself to enjoy some indulgence that you'll look forward to, but maybe you shouldn't indulge in too much, some guilty pleasure, while simultaneously doing something that's good for you and productive. So that now you start to crave, maybe it's trips to the gym to binge watch your favorite TV show, or um, you know, trips to the library because you're always going to pick up your favorite Starbucks frappuccino en route um, or, you know, folding the laundry or home cooked meals because you're listening to your favorite podcast at the same time. So if you can temptation bundle, suddenly this thing that was a chore actually becomes something you look forward to. And I've studied this and showed that it can help people exercise more um, and found in my own life, of course, that it also is very effective for solving all sorts of dual self-control challenges. So in general, Uh the principles make it fun. And then temptation bundling is one tool to do that. And the obstacle is when something isn't instantly gratifying and because of impulsivity, therefore you aren't making progress on it. Well, I love it. That just seems like a game-changing insight distinction right there. It's because of our impulsivity, don't go guns blazing for the most effective path, but rather the most enjoyable path if what you want is consistency and persistence like 
That's huge. Thank you. That's beautiful. Yeah. And I only gave you one. You asked for three. But yeah. I was all like, right. I have to breathe in here. And You're I'm... allowed to breathe. <laughs> okay. Your temptation for breathing can be bundled to more insight, Kate. <laughs> <laughs> I will breathe while giving insight. Okay. Um, a second one that I like is actually, I'll call it the getting started problem. And that is, even though we want to do something, we're motivated to do it, like finding the moment where you're like, okay, and now I'm going to take action. I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something about it. This is the moment. Action is beginning. Uh, it's hard to get over that hump from vi and visualizing it to doing it. And um, I had this really interesting conversation with one of the HR leaders at Google about a decade ago when I was visiting and presenting actually as a precursor to doing the gym study I mentioned earlier on habits. I was mentioning, I was telling them about some of my other work on um, nudging better decisions, helping people through um, use of behavioral science, make better choices at work about everything from enrollment in 401k plans to, you know, getting flu shots, you name it. And this question was, okay, Katie, totally sold. We should be using behavioral science to encourage more productivity at work, you know, more use of health and wellness programs, more retirement savings. But is there some optimal time to encourage that change? Is there some moment when people are particularly likely to hop on the bandwagon if we offer up tools that will help? And I thought it was just such a fascinating question. And I didn't know of any research that really addressed it. So it ended up guiding my work for the next several years. Um, and what I immediately thought of, which might have come to mind for you too, when I po posed that question was New Year's, right? We all know that at the beginning of a new year, there's like this huge boost in the people's enthusiasm for setting resolutions. 40% of Americans set some sort of resolution. Many of them fail, but they at least, you know, give it a shot, which is more than we can say for many other times of the year. And I wondered, and my collaborators and I wondered too, like, is there something bigger going on there? Like, is it just New Year's or are there other moments like that? And why New Year's? And what we realized is, of course, there's this like, you know, it's a social construct now. There's there's norms around it. But part of it, what's going on is that at these moments like New Year's that feel like a breaking point in life, we step back and think bigger picture. And we also feel some sort of dissociation from our past failures because, oh, like that was the old me last year. And the new me has a clean slate and I'm going to be able to do the things that were tough before and that seemed insurmountable. So that sense of a clean slate, an identity shift, boosted optimism, the tendency to step back actually arises at a lot of moments in our lives that basically serve as chapter breaks in the way mm -hmm. we structure our narrative. So there are small ones like the start of a new week. There are big ones, you know, celebrating a birthday, moving to a new job or a new city, becoming a parent. All of these moments turn out to make us feel like um, we have a clean slate and a new beginning. And people are more likely to do things like create goals on goal setting websites, um, search for the term diet on Google, uh, go to the gym mm -hmm. at these moments. And um, and so I think that's really interesting. So my team has studied specifically temporal landmarks. So moments that actually don't involve a, a change in our lives. There's also research showing when when you move to a new place, you move to a new job, mm -hmm. those moments are productive times for change because literally you have a clean slate, right? You don't have old bad habits to fall back mm -hmm. on and you have an opportunity to build and structure new routines and, you know, not walk by the Dunkin' Donuts on the way to work on this new commute. Uh, and so whatever it is that has been tripping you up, you have that clean slate in addition to the psychological clean slate. So in that sense, 
I think the obstacle there is how do you find the motivation to get started? And our research points to looking for these moments that have fresh start resonance as jumping off points and also nudging other people to notice them. So we found, for instance, if we just mark your calendar with spring, the first day of spring on it and give you an option like when would, when might you want to start getting reminders from us to pursue a goal you've been meaning to get around to. And March 20th is labeled first day of spring. Mm-hmm. Now it triples your excitement again about getting reminders to start your new goal on that date. Then if we gave you a calendar without labeling hmm. March 20th, the first day of spring. So we can do, um, and we ran a study where we invited people, thousands of people who weren't saving adequately for retirement to sign up for a retirement program at their employer to start setting aside a portion of their paychecks in retirement savings. And some people, everybody got an identical offering. You could start saving right away or you could delay a few months. But some people that delay we labeled. So, and it corresponded either to a birthday or to the start of spring. And we said, you know, do you want to start saving after your next birthday? Do you want to start saving at the start of spring? So we're literally making an apples to apples comparison because mm-hmm. everybody is getting that same offering, but some people don't have it labeled for them as their birthday. It yeah. just says, you know, in three months. And we see a 30% increase in savings over the next eight no months kidding. when we've invited people to start saving after those fresh start dates. Oh, I was just going to ask, Katie. So not only do we have more enthusiasm to start, but the proof is in the pudding. They actually do it afterwards. Well, I do think a really important note is that in that case, we set ourselves up for success because it's an auto, it's like a self-fulfilling thing. You flip the switch once to do it. Yes. And those are the best things to do at Fresh Start Moments because the motivation wanes. And that's why so many New Year's resolutions fail. So it it only solves one problem, which is getting started. And then the rest of my book talks about how do you solve all the other problems so you stick to it and actually get somewhere with your goals. But if you can put it on autopilot, how about if that's my third answer? Uh, But it's not a super original one, but it is a super powerful one. Anything we can put as a default so that it just is self-perpetuating, that's a huge win because an obstacle to change is laziness. But you can turn it on its head and make it into a solution if you set defaults like, you know, in that moment of motivation, you sign up for the retirement savings plan on January 1st. And now it's, you know, going to just kick in. You'd have to actually lift a finger to change it. And goodness knows you're never going to, um, or cancel all of your subscriptions that you don't really need one day a year when you're feeling motivated after your birthday. Those are the kinds of things that can sort of be gifts that keep on giving or signing up for a, an educational program or subscription of some sort that's really valuable. Those also can carry you forward and sort of have like riptide-like effects. So if you can use that moment when you're feeling motivated to do something and lock in a change that will continue, that's really valuable. Oh, that is cool. So this laziness work for us. If you could somehow shift it such that the default of doing nothing benefits you, then that's awesome. Exactly. Which is what happens when you sign up for a savings program once that just keeps going. Or, you know, when you enroll in school, I mean, you still have to show up, but but like you're going. It's hard to get out. Like the path of least resistance is to go for the thing that you've put a down payment on. Yeah, that's great. Well, Katie, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about a couple of your favorite things. No, this has been so, you've asked such good questions. I feel like I've been giving you really long and detailed answers. Oh, I, I love We've hit on highlights of the book. So I'm I'm excited. Thank you for the great questions. Well, maybe I'll give, I'll give one more. What should we not do? And maybe something counterintuitive, like, hey, I've heard I should do this, but I, maybe I shouldn't. I'm not a big fan of setting like really big audacious 
goals like that model uh, and just like assuming that will carry you forward because without actually getting into the nitty gritty structures, like I, I do think people like try to think about like a North Star huge objective and that that having that can be really valuable. And I think it can be distracting. It can be overwhelming. Um, there's also research showing that if you make too many, set too many goals and then plan for each of them, that's really demotivating because mm. you can't do it all and and you sort of throw up your hands and, and give up. So yeah. I, I think sort of too big and and distant and dreamy and not broken down is bad and too many uh, objectives that you do break down and plan for is bad. Like focusing on one thing at a time that's that's a little bit of a stretch, but it's doable and you can plan for it and then you can use these tactics to help you is the right way forward. Oh, great. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Is it, well done is better than well said? Hmm? Is that Ben Franklin, I believe? I like that one. Sure thing. And how about a favorite book? My favorite book is Nudge. Yeah. By Thaler and Sunstein. And that actually has a new edition coming out later this year, which I'm really excited for. Though I'll also say my second favorite book, and it's really close, is Influence by Bob Cialdini. Oh, yeah. You're a big fan, too. Um, I assigned both of those books, by the way, to all of my MBA students at Wharton. I love them and read them every year. And they're just classics and truly wonderful and have changed the way I think about the world. Mm-hmm. And how about a favorite habit for you? I wouldn't call it a habit. Can I say a favorite behavior? Oh, sure. Habits have this very narrow definition in academia where we're like, you know, I'd like on autopilot. Yeah. OK. So like a favorite behavior or this thing I do, which is I choose to work with people I really, really admire and enjoy spending time with. So that work for me is a treat intellectually, but also socially. And I feel really lucky to have the privilege of being able to choose who I collaborate with. And so um, that has made my career tremendously fun. And I think it's part of what's helped me be productive and successful in my career as well. Uh And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Um, My website, which is katiemilkman.com has all sorts of information about my book, how to change, about my podcast, Choiceology. Um, I have a newsletter called Milkman Delivers, which is a name that I was shying away from, but my MBAs insisted I had to go with, and um, about my research. Okay. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? I would say one of the biggest takeaways from all of my research on behavior change is that, um, and we sort of started here, it's super important to expect that there will be things that don't work out, that if you are too rigid in your expectations of yourself, if you set up habits that are too rigid, if you set up goals that are too rigid and let yourself be discouraged when things don't work out according to plan and don't push through, you just won't get very far. And in change, anticipating setbacks, and being prepared for them, having a backup plan is just absolutely critical. Even in habits, we found that it was critical to be flexible and build flexible habits. So it's an uh, I'll always, not an if only kind of habit. And I think that that's critical to everything. Uh, It comes up again and again in my research how important it is to find ways to get back up after you've fallen down and to be expecting that that could happen and planning for it. So my words of wisdom would be, don't let yourself be discouraged too easily. Expect that there's always setbacks, but on the path forward, you know, it's hopefully two steps forward and one step back and just be prepared for that and set yourself up for success when you hit those roadblocks. Mm-hmm. Well, Katie, this has been a pleasure. Thank you. I wish you lots of luck with the book and all the ways you're changing. Thank you. So lovely to chat. Thanks for having me on the show. 
I really appreciated Katie's take. It's so simple and yet so overlooked. Is when you're looking to make a change, you pause for a moment and say, well, why aren't you doing that thing already? Why aren't you saving? Why aren't you productive? Why are you distracted? What's holding you back? And then zero in on what's the appropriate solution there. A little bit of segmented thinking is perfection in solving a variety of problems. And this one, it makes great sense. They are very different problems which have very different solutions as opposed to a one size fits all. And it can be tempting in my own experience when I'm kind of frustrated with myself. Like, I haven't done this. Well, I got to buckle down harder and do this thing and get serious. And well, maybe that's part of the answer, but more likely there is a nuanced, elegant solution to the particular bit of resistance or obstacle that needs to be overcome there. So thank you, Katie, for that. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP665. I hope you catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.